chapter 6, and we are blessed to come to one of the rarities of church procedure. Uh, Tonight's service is different from our other services that we have in Berean Baptist. Preaching's not going to be different, and um, we're still going to look into the Word of God, and I'm still going to explain Scripture, but our purpose for meeting here tonight is very, very special. It is a different purpose now, some of you may not yet have experienced an ordination service. It's been four years since the last time we had one of these, and so there might be some of you that haven't been members of the church long enough to actually have witnessed an ordination service. Uh, the nature of the deacon's office is that it is an enduring one, and so we don't do this very often. But this is the ordination service, and we take this time uh, to dedicate one of our faithful brothers in the church to the office of deacon. And I should explain to you, I think, that the ordination has already taken place. Uh, The ordination actually happened when we elected Brother John to this office. That happened back in January. And what we're doing tonight is the ceremony for that. So the ordination is actually the election. That's when the church gets together and they choose a person for the office. And that's the way the term is used in the Bible. If you'll look in uh, Acts chapter 1, when you get a chance to read that, you'll find that there was another apostle that was chosen to take the place of Judas. And uh, they ordained this person. And the word ordained there means to elect. It means to give a show of hands and choosing one, someone for the office. And so this is when the church, then the, uh, the ordination is when the church comes together and decides and elects that person to the, to the office. And what we're doing now is sort of a formality. It's a, a technical thing that we're doing, you might say, a ceremony. And we're just restating what we've already affirmed, and we're demonstrating our approval and our confidence in a much more formal way. And I also want to say that this is very much my pleasure to do this. Uh, I don't know when that I've been to an ordination service that I can say that I regretted, but I do uh, find this one to be very pleasurable, and that's because of the faithfulness and the uh, tenacity, the dedication and the commitment that John Bunn has given to Berean Baptist Church for so many years. And so he, he stood firm in the faith, and from a scriptural standpoint I, standpoint, I can say that I have just as much confidence in this man for this office as anyone that we've ever had. So it is a pleasure to do this. And in a few minutes, I'll restate all of that in, in another way, and I'm just telling you now so I can reemphasize it later. But I'd like you to look here in the book of Acts, chapter 6, And this is where we find the historical record of the first men that were chosen for the office of deacon in the church. The reason for the office is described here. And we also have some very insightful information about the type of men that were chosen for the office. So if you look in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1, it says, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. I might want to explain that just a moment. A dispute between the Hebrews and the Grecians. That meant there were some Hebrew Jews in the church, but there are also Hellenistic Jews that are in the church, those that are from Greek descent. And so it says, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. 
but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, you'll notice there in the first verse of this chapter, it says, and in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied. And there we find the reason for the office of the deacon. The office grew out of a need, and the need is the multiplication of disciples. There are many disciples at this point, and there are so many people that were added to the church that the office of the deacon was added to the church as an organizational necessity. Now, I have a very simple outline for you tonight. And number one on your outline here is the organizational necessity for the church. The problem, if you want to put it that way, is that the church was growing very rapidly. And I want to say this, that, that it was expected of disciples, people who had received Jesus Christ by faith, it was expected that everyone who had become a Christian would become members of the Lord's church. And I don't mean that they were simply attendees, and I don't mean that they were, were floaters around and they were, uh, they were drifters that could come and go as they please, but I mean that they were very dedicated to following Christ. They, they followed this command to become functioning, committed members of the Lord's church. Now, if you'll turn back just a few pages in your Bibles to uh, chapter 2 in Acts, you'll see here the obedience of disciples in that area. This scripture is on the day of Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit first came upon the disciples. And we notice here what happened when Peter preached a very moving and outstanding sermon to the people. And in the second chapter, verse number 37, Peter had just finished his sermon, and we notice what the reaction of the people was to what they heard. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation." Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And the answer to that question was repent and be baptized. So they had received the word, they had repented of their sins, they had believed in Christ, and so now they are to be baptized and then added to the Lord's church. That's what we see going on in that scripture. And that is really the expected response to the gospel. Once you have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, you follow up that reception with baptism and you follow it up with membership in the Lord's church. In fact, the Bible shows us that that is one of the proofs of true belief. True believers will always follow the Lord's commands. They will identify with Christ in baptism. And then that baptism is the entrance into the membership of the Lord's church. 
Now, on this particular day, just starting out here, there are 3,000 people that received Christ. Now, the 12 apostles were very busy on that day, baptizing 3,000 people. And by the end of the day, there were 3,120 members of that first church in Jerusalem. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. I mean, to have a church with 120 members grow to 3,120 members in just one day. And it's because of that rapid growth that we had, they had to have deacons. Now, if you go on reading here from chapter 2 and read on through to chapter 6, you'll find that in the fourth chapter, there are 5,000 men that were added to the church. That's besides the women and the children. And then in chapter 5, it says that there were multitudes more that believe and became a part of the church. And so by the time that we get to the beginning of chapter 6, where we've just read, when it says the number of disciples were multiplied, I'm telling you folks, the number of disciples were multiplied. Now we've got somewhere upwards to about twenty to 30,000 people that are members of this first church in Jerusalem. And so now I would say you have an organizational problem. You've got 12 men. You have 12 apostles. You have 12 leaders in the church. You have 12 preachers. And so how are they going to deal with all of these spiritual and physical needs of the people? Well, the 12 disciples, apostles, discovered that, and so they knew something has to be done about this. And I would submit to you that the next decision that they make is a Holy Spirit-led decision. Because when the Holy Spirit moves a church in a way like that, he always has a plan to take care of the needs, to take care of what he wants done. You remember reading in the Old Testament that Moses was faced with this issue. Uh, when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, there were at least 2 million people that came out and probably some say even as many as 6 million people that came out of Egypt in the Exodus. And Moses discovered that there are a lot of problems with that many people. And how is he going to handle all of those problems? Well, the solution to it was to select some other leaders, some that would come under the authority of Moses, and they would judge lesser matters among the people. And so this is what we see here. Church organization needed to change. There has to be a way to take care of all the needs of God's people. They must be provided for. And so with that increasing membership, there was another office of church leadership that was necessary. And that's why we have the office of the deacon. It's an organizational change in response to the need. And so the need is brought about by the Holy Spirit's movement upon God's church. Now, I know that this is the case. I mean, I know that this is a Holy Spirit-led decision to add these men in this office because we look a little bit later in 1 Timothy, and there we find some detailed instructions and some qualifications for the men, further qualifications for the men that take this office. So we know that this is not something that's created on a whim of the apostles. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to talk about this, to give details about those qualifications. And so growth that's fueled by the Holy Spirit's movement causes the need for additional organization. Now, the church does need biblical organization. A couple of years ago, I was witnessing to a young man at the car wash, and uh, we began to talk about the church. And he had an objection when I was speaking to him about, well, if you're a saved person, then you need to be a part of a church. What church are you a part of? And he says, well, I don't like the organized church. Well, there isn't any other kind but an organized church. Now, some people say, well, the church is not organized. The church is an organism. 
And I do believe the church, that's definitely true. The church is a living organism. That's why it's called a body. But how many of you have a disorganized body? I mean, I don't see anybody here with arms growing out of the top of your head. And you've got two feet that are attached to the end of your legs and not at the end of your knees. You've got a nose in the middle of your face where it's supposed to be. You have two ears on either side. You have a very highly organized body. And if you didn't have, you'd look a lot stranger than you already do. So here, th- this is a need. It's a, a, the organizational need. It's a body. That's true, but it must have organization. So very simply, that, that's the first part of this. The, the office of the deacon grows out of that organizational need. Now, secondly, we notice here the spiritual quality of the man. Now, once the apostles realized the necessity for more organization, they also realized that you can't put just anybody into the ministry. You can't just have anybody fulfill this office of a deacon. And so you have various people in your church in different stages of their spiritual development. You have some people that are new Christians, and they don't yet know the Word of God. They're not yet experienced. They're just learning things. You have Christians in churches that have a marginal commitment to the work of the Lord, not very committed at all. And then you have people in your church that are of questionable conduct. There's some things that are going on in their lives that aren't supposed to be there. So you can't put those types of people into the ministry. Uh, The people that go into the ministry must be spiritual people. Now, a minister is a servant. Brother Dalton said that just a moment ago. A deacon is a servant. And in that sense, everybody in the church is called to be a minister. All of us are to be servants of Christ. And as servants of Christ, every single person in the Lord's church must have an exemplary lifestyle. That's expected of every Christian. But there are specialized forms of ministry. For instance, the pastor, that's a different type of minister in the church from the ordinary person in the church pew. The pastor is the one who's the under-shepherd under Christ. He's the one who leads the people and shepherding them. He has a unique ministry of teaching the people. And also the deacons, that is a very different type of ministry. It's different from the regular church members. It's different from the pastor. But it is an elevated position. Now, the deacon's office does not make him a lord over the church. Some people I know are confused about that. They think, well, who runs the church? Well, the deacons run the church. I say that when I've got a problem. I let They're the ones that run the church. If something goes wrong, it's their fault, not mine. But the deacons don't run the church. That's not their responsibility. And uh, just like a pastor, he's not to be the lord over the church. But this is a very special office, different from any type, other type of minister. And so, since he is different, the Bible gives special qualifications for the man. Now, the apostle said this in verse number 3 of Acts 6, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So they said, start looking for some men that are honest, Look for some men that are of good reputation. Look for some men who have demonstrated that the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. Look for men that are wise. Now, he doesn't say here necessarily, you go look and you find some men that have all been to, to the seminary. 
Those are the guys that you choose to be leaders in your church. Or go look for somebody who's got a master's degree. Those are the only ones you can, the only ones you can put in the ministry of the church. That's not what the Bible, uh, the Word of God says we're looking for. We're looking for men in whom we can see the Holy Spirit working in their lives. And so these men were to be men qualified for the office. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And here's where we find that more information about qualifications for the office. As I mentioned this morning as we were reading our scripture from 1 Timothy, that 1 Timothy is sort of a church manual. It's filled with all kinds of advice for a young pastor by the name of Timothy, different kinds of things for order in the church, and it outlines something here about deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 8, it says, Likewise... Must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to take a look at what Paul says here and look at some of the qualifications that the Word of God says that a man must have before he assumes the office of a deacon. We would notice, first of all, that Paul is teaching us here that a a deacon should be dutiful. A deacon must be grave. That means he has to be committed. He has to be somber. That actually corresponds to Acts 6.3 where it says that he should be honest. All of those meanings are included in the word grave. And it means that he understands the responsibility and and the seriousness of the commitment that he's made to the church and to the office and to the duties that is expected of him. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, there it's the administration of food, and that's taking care of physical needs of the people. But I don't believe that that means that a deacon is restricted to that task alone. A deacon assists the pastor in the church wherever he's needed. A deacon is there in the ministry of the church for the good of the entire ministry, and he assumes the position. He takes this office understanding that there are some things that are going to be asked of him that haven't been already outlined. There might be a need of the church that arises, and we have to have men that are willing to meet that need. If it's good for the church, then this person willingly accepts that challenge. And I'll say that if a man desires the office of a deacon, and he wants to be a deacon because there's a title that goes along with it, then he's in the, he has the wrong idea about being a deacon, what it, what it really means. And when the church considers men for a deacon and that person who's considered doesn't get elected, what does the man do? Well, does he sulk about that? Is he all upset because he hasn't received the title? Well, if that's the way that he feels, then he shouldn't have been elected. I'm going to tell you just a a little story here about John. Uh, He was considered before for the office of the deacon, and he lost the election. Now, that didn't mean he wasn't qualified. That just means that we had... Uh, several men that were qualified, and the church chooses between the qualified men. Now, I'll refer you back to 
Acts chapter 1, when they chose the apostle to replace Judas, that there were two men, Matthias and Justice, that their names came up, and they had to decide between those two men. Both were qualified. If they hadn't been, they wouldn't have been considered, but only one could be chosen. Well, that's a similar situation that we had with John. And when John lost that election, he didn't come with any kind of dissatisfaction. In fact, I talked to him about this, and what he told me was, he said, I am content. I'm content to do what God wants me to do, however the church wants me to serve. And, And at that time, of course, and still is our treasurer. And so he said, I'm going to dedicate myself to being the best treasurer that I can be. That's the way you expect a person to respond. That's the right attitude. And that's why I feel so good about this election. Another thing that we notice the Scripture says here, that the man must be truthful. The Scripture says he's not to be double-tongued. And that means that he doesn't tell me one thing and tell you something else. A diplomat, or a deacon rather, sometimes has to be a diplomat. I mean, you have to learn to get, a, get along with people and deal with different kinds of situations. But being a diplomat doesn't mean you have to be dishonest. You can't please everybody all the time. That's an impossible thing to do. And whenever you do that by being untruthful with one side or the other just to keep the peace, then the dishonesty sooner or later is going to catch up with you. So this man, this man must be truthful. And, of course, we believe that John is a truthful man. Now, another thing that we would see here is that he is to be exceptional. He's to be an exceptional man. Uh, And there are two characteristics here that we find in Scripture that make him exceptional compared to many, many others that are Christians. Now, here's one thing we notice. It says, he's not to be given to much wine. And that doesn't mean that a little wine is okay, just not much wine. Now, I want you to notice that the first part of the verse there says, likewise, verse number 8, I believe, it says, likewise. And that's a reference to the preceding material, what's come before. And there it's talking about a pastor. And in verse number 3, it says that a pastor is not to be given to wine. And that's a prohibition against it. And the eighth verse here is just as much as a prohibition. Now, I'll tell you very clearly what I believe on this issue. The Bible does not approve of the use of alcohol for anyone, especially in these times. There are so many families that have been ruined by it. There are so many uh, people that have been killed by it. There are so many people that have been fooled by it and so many that have been made fools by it that I don't think that you could ever make make a clear argument, a coherent argument or an adequate defense on the basis of Christian liberty that a person should be allowed to drink alcohol. A few uh, years ago, I went to a wedding of a Baptist couple, and a Baptist pastor was performing the ceremony, and at the reception, they brought out the champagne. And I watched that for just a little while, and I saw Baptist people starting to make fools out of themselves because they drank too much. And my subject tonight is not the use of alcohol. I'm just taking that opportunity to tune you up a little bit on the subject. And so my advice to you is drink responsibly, which means if you're a responsible person, you don't drink at all. So here, here, this is one of its characteristics. And and today, do you understand this, that it's getting harder and harder to find that type of person? I mean, today we have churches where this is perfectly acceptable. They can drink all that they want practically. Well, I think the Bible teaches against that, and it's hard for us to find men that are going to meet that qualification. So it's not acceptable behavior. Now, another 
uh, part here. An exceptional person is someone who's not in love with his bank account. Here it says that a deacon must not be greedy of filthy lucre. That means that he can't be a money lover. Now, the reason for that's obvious. In the Bible times, the uh, deacons were taking care of a lot of the physical needs of the people. So they were taking up collections. They were handling money. They went and they distributed to the necessity of all the people. And so they were handling the money. Well, that, of course, becomes doubly apropos in in our situation here because John is also our church treasurer. And so that means that he handles uh, somewhere, I think, around three to $400,000 yearly for the church and for the school. And I'm thankful, very much thankful, that he is above reproach on that. John does everything by the book. There is a perfect accounting of every dollar that goes through this church. And I appreciate John because that, that's not a small undertaking. It's very time-consuming, paying all those bills, taking care of the money. And when things get tough, when we're in a time period like we are now and the budget starts to get stressed or get stretched, there is added stress on the person who has to handle all of that money. And John is trustworthy with it. He is exceptionally gifted in that area. And I don't think there's any of these men on our deacon board that are, are anything less than just totally comfortable, totally, totally grateful for what John does with our finances. So he is an exceptional man. He, he handles finances well. He handles his personal life well. And, and I don't want to betray any secrets about John, but there are things that John has done for the church, uh, things money taken out of his own pocket for things that are needed for ministry in the church. And John does that because he loves his church so much. So he's exceptional in that way. Another thing we find here, fourthly, is that the deacon must be faithful. Of course, we would expect that. Verse 9 says, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Now there, the word faith actually means the gospel of Christ. And that includes all of the doctrines that are taught by the church. And I believe that John is a man who understands the simplest part of the gospel. He understands salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But he's also spent some time understanding the whole compendium of the faith. You see, a person who's chosen for a deacon has to know more than just salvation by grace through faith. There's a lot of other deacons that are taught, uh, a lot of other uh, subjects, rather, and doctrines that are taught in the church. And the man has to know about these things. And I can tell by the questions that John asked, that he, that how he asks in wisdom, that he knows some of these things. So he's faithful to God's word in that aspect. But you also notice here that there's another aspect of faithfulness in verse number 10. It says, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. blameless. So he must be proved. So we choose men because of their faithfulness, they're proved. Now, whatever it might be that they claim to know, if they don't live what they claim to know, then they're not faithful. John is a man who is concerned about prayer. He's here for our prayer meetings on Sunday nights and helps to handle that. He always tells me, please promote the prayer time. Let people know about that so people can come and join us in church. You know, it's hard to lead other people uh, and be a good testimony for others if you won't commit to the services of the Lord's church. You know, I've never met a person that reached a stage of Christianity where they didn't need to go to church. I've never met a person like that. And and what I mean by that, it's not just attending church, but I mean to attend church that you are a member of. 
Now, from, the, from fellowship and learning, all of that's needed in your church. And that's one of the most basic commands that we find in Scripture. And I've always said this. You've heard me say it. If you can't teach people to go to church, you can't teach them anything. You've already lost the battle from growing up as Christians. It's impossible. You can't get spiritual growth without being a part of the church and and coming to church and listening and, and learning there. So we look for people then that have demonstrated faithfulness in their attendance. They prove themselves by being faithful to the word that's taught in the church and then also to the fellowship that we find among the membership of our church. So a deacon's faithfulness then is to be proved in life's daily activities. He is to be blameless. Now, there are some people in the church that just lend themselves to constant accusations. Whether it's true or false, you can find a lot of people in churches that are always in the middle of some kind of controversy. And I've always said, when you find a person like that, you'll find somebody that's living too close to the edge. There's something just a little bit shady about that person. And even though they might not be guilty of something, they're too close to the edge. Well, I have to say this about John, that I, I don't hear anything about questionable activities of John Bunn. Now, thankfully, I don't hear it about the other deacons either. But if I, if I were to compare character of people at this point, I, I would think of a good man that we had here named Grant Evans. You know, I never heard a complaint about Grant. I never heard him uh, say a word out of place. I never saw flashes of anger from him. That's a good description for a person to have. A man, be a man like Grant Evans was, a deacon like he was. And I think John's that kind of man. He's, he's a good man to be in the company of. Now, I want you to notice, though, verse number 11, because I do believe that we have to address this too. It says, Even so must their wives be grave, not slanders, sober, faithful in all things. I don't know what I'm going to do with verse 11 when it comes to John. Now, unless he's keeping some big, deep secret, I don't think he has a wife. I haven't heard he's looking for one either. If there's a rumor about that going around, be sure and tell me because I want to know about that. But some would take verse number 11 here and what we've read, and they would say that a deacon must be married. And if that's true, then it would also be true that a pastor must be married. And we also see here that family members are, or family issues are mentioned here for both the pastor and the deacon. So then not only must he be married, then he must also have children. Children are a part of the subject of the chapter. But a man doesn't have to be married to fill these offices. Now, there may be cases where that's advantageous, but it's not necessary Paul gave a lot of instructions to pastors and to deacons, to wives and families of of pastors and deacons, but we notice something about Paul. He wasn't married. And in fact, he often stated or did state about the advantages of not being married. There can be some advantages to this. Now, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about this. The subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is marriage. Here's what Paul says. He says, For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to be unmarried, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. So Paul is telling us there, it's okay not to be married. And it's okay if you are married. 
He says every person has their proper gift, meaning that God has called some people to be married and some he doesn't call to be married. That, that depends on the individual. So evidently, we would say that John has a gift for being single. How long he's going to keep that gift, I don't know. He may break a few hearts around here. I just don't know. But if you're going to be a critic here on this subject, you need to understand and know what God's Word says about it. John, John is not prohibited, prohibited from serving because he's not married. In fact, the Apostle Paul says there can be advantages to not being married. But, but we're, we're not trying to decide for John, well, John, you know, you, you really need to go get married now. Just, just do that and we'll have everything that's okay. That's not what the Bible's telling us here. The Lord is able to gift the man for what he needs. And we don't exclude him from these offices because of marriage. Uh, that's not a criteria for it. If he is married, he must meet the qualifications. Now, that leads me then to our final observation tonight. And thirdly, we want to talk about the functional ability of the office. Now, going back to the book of Acts, the deacon's office was added for organizational stability of the church. There were just too many people. There were too many problems. And the apostles devoted themselves to the main work that God had given them. That's praying for, teaching the people. So in Acts 6, verse number 4, the apostles say, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Well, the diaconate was established for a different function in the church. And so there are some that would conclude from this that deacons are not to deal with any type of spiritual matters. In other words, they're not to concern themselves with teaching, not to be concerned with dealing with spiritual problems that the people have. And some people put that totally in the realm of the pastor. Well, I think that's a misinterpretation of Scripture. And I know that there are some pastors that are afraid to give deacons those kind of responsibilities, and that's because they feel challenged. They're they're afraid that the people will have their loyalties divided. They'll become loyal to someone else. Some of them are afraid that there's going to be a deacon revolt, and the deacons are going to take over the church. And sometimes that happens. It has happened in some churches. And I would say if men are not properly qualified, it could happen. But it won't happen if they are. And if the pastor is not a prideful person, if he's not a controlling person, that's not going to happen. But when a pastor becomes the prince of the church and he wants to control everything that goes on, then you're going to run into problems. And so some churches have just stripped deacons of all those responsibilities and some don't even have deacons at all because the pastor is afraid to have them. Well, what happens when churches like that do have deacons and... uh, the pastor has all the authority. What he turns out doing is turning the deacons into whipping boys and makes them trash gatherers and light bulb changers and parking lot attendants, and that's about it. Well, of course, deacons should be willing to do all those jobs if they're called upon, even if it takes cleaning toilets and things like that. Then, then if they're called on to do it, it's necessary. Deacons ought to be willing to do that. But deacons aren't the pastor's slaves. Deacons aren't the church's slaves. They're servants, and we work together. We're in the ministry together. I think a pastor ought to consider it that way. We are co-laborers, all of us here, co-laborers for Christ. We work together. We're not worried about the pecking order here. We're co-laborers for Christ. So I am the shepherd underneath of Christ. I don't desire to strip the deacons of spiritual responsibilities because I know that they can be a help to the church and to the pastor in so many areas. 
They can pray with people. They can use their Bibles to teach people. They can stand in the pulpit if necessary. And they can preach sermons from here. Oh, they don't, have to necessarily, don't necessarily have to be preachers, but they can be. And that's great benefit to the church. So a pastor needs good deacons to help uh, spiritual matters, to be spiritual leaders. And so they lead by example in the physical work they do, but also examples of spiritual leadership. So the functional ability of the office is both in the physical and the spiritual realms. This is because a pastor doesn't have a lot of time to deal with uh, the physical things that go on. A pastor doesn't have time to deal with the physical uh, plant of the church and and fixing things around here. I mean, just like the apostles say, according to verses 2 and 4, that that they are to devote themselves to, to the teaching of the people and prayer for the people and so on. But that doesn't mean that deacons cannot enter into that spiritual realm. So this is why we choose men that are qualified for both. Now, you might think from all that I've said that everything that a deacon does is always and only for others. Christian service is not always and only for others. Now, I want you to listen to me for just a moment. And don't, don't think, well, now he's gone off on the deep end because now he's saying that we can love ourselves, that we can, we can do everything for selfish motives. I don't mean that at all. What I do mean is that God has built into our Christian service a personal reward. And there's nothing wrong with us seeking the personal reward because that is an incentive for us to endure hardships for Christ. So there is a personal reward that comes with being a deacon and that goes beyond what a normal church member would receive. In in verse 13, over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read it a moment ago, it says, For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So there he's talking about the reward that a faithful deacon receives. And this is not just referring to a heavenly reward. There is a heavenly reward for this, but there's also the reward of the esteem and the honor and the respect of God's people. And so a, a deacon who does this right, and he hasn't, he's not someone that, that's come along and asked for that title in advance. He thinks he has to have a position in the church. He's got to have a title in the church because he deserves it. If he's not that kind of person, and if he has all the qualities we've just talked about, then he will earn that title. He will earn the respect of the office by consistent faithfulness to the Lord and to his people. So the deacon that performs well... This verse is telling us that he increases in the grace of God, that he actually has more power with God. He's granted boldness in the faith. He's granted fearlessness in the faith. And that comes through his continued faithfulness to God's church and to God's word. Well, we come tonight then to the placement of our final seal of approval on the man that we think John Bunn to be. Uh, We have elected him for this office. Uh, The church has shown confidence in him. And now we want to do something that follows the apostolic precedent that we find here in Scripture. The Word of God says that they chose these men and they laid hands on them. Verse number 6 says they laid their hands on them. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to follow this apostolic precedent that we find here in the book of Acts and we're going to lay on hands. I'm going to ask Brother John if you would come and you would kneel here. And what we're doing here is a symbolic gesture. 
As I've told you before, John has already been ordained. The church did that when we elected him. We are completing the ceremony. And when we lay hands on John, it's, it's, we don't do this because we're transferring power to him. John's not going to become super deacon after we lay our hands on him. Uh, we're not giving him any grace from the Holy Spirit or anything like that. What we're doing as representatives of the church is just showing that we have put our approval upon him, that we believe him to be a faithful man, a dedicated man, a man of good testimony, and a man that can take this office of deacon. And so we have the laying on of hands, and we represent you as the church. And then when we're finished here, we're going to take a moment for everybody in the church to come and just shake hands with John, give him your support, tell him that you're going to pray for him and the ministry that he has in our church. So let's pray, then we'll have our laying on of hands. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we just thank you for uh, John Bunn. We thank you, Lord, for the great testimony that he's been in this church. Uh, Lord, if, if he hadn't shown that faithfulness, if he hadn't shown that tenacity all these years, if he hadn't been here for services, we wouldn't be in this position of doing this tonight. But we've chosen him because he has proven to be faithful. And Lord, now as we lay our hands on him, I just pray that every member of this church would have it down deep in their heart that they respect John and the ministry and that they will give him their full support. And Lord, whatever way that you'd have him to work, we just ask you, Lord, to work in his heart that he would fulfill that responsibility. So now, Lord, we thank you for this blessed time, a very special time for our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.